Thank you, François, for this introduction. And welcome to our conference on calendars in antiquity and the Middle Ages. I would like to um, begin by thanking um, the organizers of the conference, um, in particular um, Casey uh, Johnson, who is our administrator, worked quite hard on this conference, although she came in rather late. Georgia Pantelli was uh, in charge of the conference earlier on, so we're very grateful to her, as well as to Isara Ben-Isaac from the Institute of Jewish Studies for seeing to all the logistic aspects uh, of this conference. This conference represents the culmination <coughs> of a five-year project on calendars in late antiquity and the Middle Ages. So um, I would like to begin by explaining briefly what this project is about and what this conference is coming to um, celebrate or sum up in a, in a certain way. And then afterwards, I shall move on to my own presentation. Calendars in late antiquity and the Middle Ages, standardization and fixation, is a major research project funded by the ERC that has been running for nearly five years. It's due to finish in January 2018. This research project studies the evolution of calendars in late antique and medieval societies with a special focus on Roman, Christian, Jewish, and Islamic calendars. The complex evolution of these calendars was closely related to politics, science, and religion, and contributed more widely to the standardization of culture in the ancient and medieval worlds. And yes, we're very proud of being a part, a part of Europe. The, the uh, key word here is standardization, which perhaps I should try to explain. Standardization and fixation. What, we, what we're trying to do is not just to research how time is reckoned, how calendars are constructed, in late ancient and medieval society, but also to try and capture the processes whereby these calendars became increasingly standardized, unified, and fixed in the sense that uh, they were no longer subject to change or to amendment, but became established as permanent schemes. And this will be the theme of my presentation tonight. In order to identify these processes of standardization and fixation, we split up our project into several research areas. Originally, there were only four. Now, they've become six. The first of these was the seven-day week in the Roman Empire. I'll be talking more about this uh, this evening. The second is the Hemerologia, which are late Roman multiple calendar tables that appear in early medieval manuscripts and we'll be hearing a paper on this during the conference that will be tomorrow. The third research area is a Jewish calendar controversy of 921 to 2 which I'll be referring to briefly tonight. The fourth is Jewish reiterative calendars, the 247-year cycle in medieval Tradition will have a paper on this on Wednesday. The uh, very important monograph by Albiruni 
uh, on the chronology of the ancient nations written in Arabic around the year 1000. We will have a paper on this during the conference. And finally, another very important monograph in Hebrew, Yesod Olam, composed in 1310 in Spain by Isaac, Israeli. There will be a couple of papers on this uh, also at the conference. This is our research team. All these people are here in the room, I think, and we'll be, uh, you'll have opportunities to talk to them, meet them uh, during the course of the conference. Um, I, I should say that I'm very grateful to every member of the team. We've worked very hard over the last five years. We've made quite remarkable achievements, at least I feel we have. Partly, my paper tonight is partly based on the research which was carried out by individuals within the team as well as conclusions emerging from discussions within the team as a whole, which I think demonstrates the effectiveness of researching in a group. And I hope I'll be able to convey this tonight in some ways. Another thing we did in our project was to run a series of workshops. Some of you in this room have attended some of these workshops. This has been one of the highlights of the, of the project. But let's now move on then and uh, to my paper, which, of which the title is How Calendars Became Standardized and Fixed. What are the processes which lead to calendars becoming the same everywhere, standard, and becoming changeless, fixed. I would like to try and answer this question as I feel it's my responsibility as principal investigator to try and sort of present some sort of grand answer to the grand question that we posed, although the reality is that there isn't really a grand answer, and all we can do is point in a number of discrete directions, which perhaps altogether present a certain picture of how these processes work. So I would like to begin with um, an overview of the transformation of calendars in antiquity, 530 BCE to 600 CE, and after that to move on to a number of more discrete cases from antiquity and the Middle Ages, and hopefully the question will be somehow answered. So if we begin from the early Achaemenid period, the beginning of the Achaemenid, Persian Achaemenid Empire in 530 BCE, the situation uh, in the ancient world, when I say ancient world, I'm talking in a very Eurocentric way of Europe and the Near East, I'm not going much further beyond that, what we have is basically um, a green patch, which is very, very big, and a pink one, which is very small. The green patch is where lunar calendars are used. And as you can see, pretty much in the whole world, this is what was used. Lunar calendars in 500 BCE uh, are flexible, unpredictable. They depend on new moon sightings or on approximations of when the new moon is happening. So this means that the length of months is going to be variable and unpredictable. The length of the year is also um, variable because sometimes a 13th month is added and it's usually added on an ad hoc basis. 
And all this leads to tremendous diversity of calendars, regional and also in terms of their structure, in terms of month names and so on and so forth. The Egyptian calendar, by contrast, is fixed, predictable, schematic, it consists exactly of 12 months, each month has 30 days, plus an extra five days which are added at the end of the year, which yields a 365-day year. And this calendar is completely changeless, completely predictable, has been in existence in Egypt for over millenn millennium by, by the year 530 BCE and will carry on working for many centuries after that. So the important thing to understand is that at this point in time in history, the Egyptian calendar is exceptional, and, and why such a different calendar uh, came to existence in Egypt is a question which I won't go into, but it's certainly exceptional, and it's a minority. It's not the way calendars normally present themselves in the ancient world. But um, in the course of time, what is going to happen is that the Egyptian calendar is going to spread and increasingly is going to become the norm throughout the ancient world. And this change is already visible in 400 BCE, which I will refer to as the late Achaemenid period, by which time the Persian Zoroastrian calendar has been instituted which is effectively the Egyptian calendar. It's exactly the same as the Egyptian calendar, except that it has a different new year and that the names of months and the way the days are named within the month is different, but in structural terms, it is exactly the same as the Egyptian calendar. Uh, and I think this has something to do with the fact that um, the Persian Achaemenid Empire conquered and next Egypt uh, in the late 6th century BCE, and as part of its sort of imperial conquest of Egypt, it adopted the Egyptian calendar. So already half the map has gone pink. Meanwhile, uh, in this area, the lunar calendar remains, but it becomes nevertheless, to a large extent, standardized throughout um, this region, which is indicated with an arrow, the imperial, an imperial standard Babylonian calendar becomes established throughout these parts of the Achaemenid Empire. It's a lunar calendar, but it has uh, increasingly uh, fixed and predictable elements to it. For example, the addition of a 13th month is regulated by a 19-year cycle. So this is a pattern which repeats itself regularly. So in certain ways, uh, although the calendar is still lunar, but it is, has become much more standardized and much more fixed. So what we are witnessing here then is a transformation of calendars from flexible to fixed, from empirical to schematic, from diverse to standard. We also see the spread of the Egyptian calendar. And I would like to suggest that these changes are occurring because, or they are related at least, to the formation of very great empires. The Achaemenid Empire was one of the greatest empires that ever existed in antiquity. Very large territories which need to be administrated and where uh, it is increasingly convenient to use a standard calendar which will apply across the empire for administrative purposes. This is certainly a very big advantage. We now move on to the 
Roman period, and in 44 BCE, Julius Caesar has just instituted the Julian calendar, which means that this whole region now has gone pink, because very quickly after the institution of Julian calendar, it spreads to the whole of Italy and to the whole of the western parts of the Roman Empire. And the Julian calendar, which is very similar to the calendar that we have today, what we known as the Gregorian calendar, is basically the Egyptian calendar. Again, it's a, a borrowing from Egypt. Uh, there is a slight improvement to it that an extra day is added every four years. This is a leap year that we are all familiar with, uh, 29th of February in our, in our calendar. It is basically a fixed calendar. It's a solar calendar. So again, we have this, uh, a further de development in this direction. The calendars uh, of Rome and of Italy and other regions in the West which previously were flexible have now become fixed. It's a shift to a solar model. It is a shift to a standard model. And it is related, uh, undoubtedly, to the expansion of the Roman Empire <coughs> in this very period. By the late Roman period, uh, there are now large areas to the east that have become pink. I'm just going to go back one step that you should... Yes, if you look at uh, what is known today as Turkey, yes, Asia Minor, which is green uh, in 44 BCE, has now become pink. In fact, the whole of the Roman Near East has turned pink by 285 CE. And this is because the Roman Empire has advanced into the Near East, and as it advances into the Near East, the local lunar calendars switch to becoming solar on the model of the Julian calendar. So lunar calendars become solar, flexible to fixed, from diverse to standard, at least through the medium of the hemerology. I'm not going to explain this in detail, but there are conversion schemes which mean that uh, there is increasing standardization of the calendar, and it's all around the model of the Julian calendar. And again, of course, this is a direct result of the expansion of the Roman Empire. And then finally, we come to the end of antiquity, and this is a picture as it looks right at the end. At this point in time, um, the Julian Canada has been adopted in the Roman East, which is now called the Byzantine Empire. So it's not any more local calendars adapted to the model of the Julian calendar. It is the Julian calendar. Okay, so now, uh, everywhere in the Roman East or in the Byzantine Empire, it's a Julian calendar that's being used. Yeah, sorry, the, the Greek peninsula should also be pink. The, Greece also, at this point in time, the established calendar in use is none other but the Julian calendar. And the only enclave that has retained a lunar calendar is, in fact, uh, from, I mean, from the territory that we've been looking at, is, uh, of course, India, China are still using um, a lunar calendar. In Arabia, the calendar is still lunar, etc. But in the region that we've been looking at, the only en remaining enclave is Mesopotamia, where lunar calendars are still in use. So what we are left with at the end of antiquity is, a, in the West, a Julian calendar, which is solar, which is fixed, which is standard, Easter cycles, Christian Easter cycles, which I haven't spoken much about, or not at all actually about so far, uh, which are based on 19-year cycles, which are increasingly becoming standard. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. 
And then in the east, the Zoroastrian calendar, which is schematic, uh, fixed, standard, and very soon the Islamic calendar will come on the scene, which is a lunar calendar, but um, I would like to suggest that it is also uh, it can also be seen as a standard calendar in the sense that it is a very simple calendar uh, because it doesn't uh, intercalate ever a 13th month. Uh, every year it is basically the same in structural terms, so it is also in a certain way a standard calendar, a simple standard calendar. Good. So um, why then, how then is it that the ancient world uh, transformed itself in such a remarkable way between 530 BCE and 600 CE? Was it to do with scientific progress? Between the 5th century BCE and the 2nd century CE, Mesopotamian and a bit later, or at the same time and a bit later, Hellenistic astronomy made tremendous strides uh, in terms of development and progress and it's tempting to suggest that the development of calendars uh, towards standardized schemes might have been related to scientific knowledge which was accumulated through Mesopotamian and Hellenistic astronomy. I'm putting a question mark to this because I have argued against this it seems to me that, in fact, Mesopotamian and Hellenistic astronomy had a very minimal impact on the calendars which were used. And you will recall from the previous slides that Mesopotamia is a one place in antiquity where diverse, uh, disorganized lunar calendars survived right until the end. Uh, and much the same can be said also of Greece. It's only right at the end of our period that the peninsula of Greece eventually adopted the, Byz the Byzantine Julian calendar. So, funnily enough, uh, precisely in those regions where uh, astronomy developed and thrived, uh, the calendar didn't actually uh, evolve in quite the same way. But there are some cases where we can point to scientific progress having an impact on the development of calendars. One is the creation of uh, the development of Easter computers, the development of calculated schemes for establishing the date of Easter and uh, this starts from the 3rd century to the 5th century and was definitely uh, those who de devised these schemes definitely drew on um, Hellenistic uh, astronomical knowledge and then in the 8th or 9th centuries when the rabbinic Molad calendar was established which is the present Jewish calendar today uh, this calendar, again, very clearly drew on um, astronomical knowledge um, of quite an advanced um, level. But I think much more important are political processes, and as I said earlier, the rise of great empires definitely had a very major impact on the evolution of calendars in antiquity, I spoke earlier about the needs of administration, of imperial administration, the convenience of having a single calendar to run um, an entire empire over a very large, very wide territory. But one can also think about imperialist culture, a certain interest that imperialist rulers might have in establishing a single culture across their empire and of fostering, therefore, the use of a single calendar. And I think this becomes very visible in the late Roman period. Uh, 
during the Christianization of the Roman Empire, and I'll say a bit more about this later. And finally, religious change is also something to bear in mind as we progress through late antiquity from pagan pluralism to orthodox monotheism. It becomes, uh, I think, the conditions become increasingly conducive towards the establishment of single calendars, of unique, one could say, orthodox calendars, which are meant to be observed by all. Good. Okay, so these then are different factors which might have led to standardization and fixation of calendars in antiquity. I would like to move on now to three cases, or one could say three examples, uh, of processes which we have studied in the course of our project, which I think will illustrate further ways in which calendars have become standardized and fixed over the period of history. The first of these is the seven-day week. And I'm grateful to Ilaria Botrigini, who uh, was responsible for this research area. We did a lot of work together on this, and some of the findings which I'm presenting here are entirely her own work, so this is my acknowledgement. So basically what we found here, uh, which wasn't obvious actually to me and perhaps not obvious to others before we started, is that the seven-day week originates from two distinct and completely independent traditions. The first is a biblical week, which is familiar to us from the first chapter of Genesis, so the narrative of the creation of the world in seven days, where the seventh day was the Sabbath, the day when God rested, and then the Ten Commandments, where there is a prohibition on working for six days, uh, sorry, an obligation of working for six days. That would be interesting, that one. Uh, yeah, working for six days and then resting on the seventh. So this is then the tradition of the seven-day week in the Bible, which it is well known to all, and equally well known, although one doesn't always realize that it's a completely separate tradition, is a planetary week where every day of a seven-day cycle is assigned to a planet or a, one of the large um, heavenly bodies. So Sunday is the day of the sun, Monday the day of the moon, and so on. It's a tradition which um, is not at all uh, attested in any way in the Bible. It could be attributed to what we could call popular astrology. I say popular astrology because it has no relationship with science. There is no um, reality uh, out there in the sky that would relate the planets to a particular day in a seven-day cycle. There's no meaning to this in terms of astronomy. So um, we could call this popular astronomy, astrology. And it seems to me that this tradition is likely to be of Italian origin simply because all the evidence we have of this planetary week during the first century comes uh, exclusively from the Italian peninsula. So I'll say a few words about these two traditions, and then we'll have to explain how these two traditions were manifest or became manifest in the Roman period and how they, uh, how they spread. So let's begin with the biblical week. 
The interesting thing about the biblical week is that although it is well established in the first chapter of Genesis and in the commandment of the Sabbath, there is actually uh, not much about the week through the Hebrew Bible. One doesn't actually encounter the week very much in the Bible. And events in the Bible are never dated according to a day of the week. Events in the Bible are dated sometimes according to a month, sometimes according to a day in the month, the year sometimes given also, but we are never told what day of the week it was. Quite a remarkable observation. The earliest evidence we have of days of the week, or the seven-day week, being used in conjunction with a calendar is in fact in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is relatively late. On the screen you have 4Q326, which is dated to the middle of the first century BCE. There are also earlier, slightly earlier, calendrical scrolls from the Dead Sea, but this is a reasonable example. And as you can see, the various dates in the year are correlated with the day of the Sabbath. So there is a certain synchronization between the seven-day week and other elements of the calendar. This then is the Dead Sea Scrolls. In about the same period in Egypt, we have a papyrus which talks about... A, it's a very nice story, which I won't tell you, but uh, an elaborate story. It's a complaint which was lodged to the police about something which happened. But anyway, the date that is given for the incident is the 27th of the current month of Epeif, which is a month in the uh, Egyptian calendar, which was Friday. The Greek word is prosambaton, which means before Sabbath, and it's a term which will become standard, or reasonably standard, as a designation of Friday. This document, which is dated 49 BCE, is the earliest document I know of in the, in the whole of history where uh, an event is dated according to a day of the week. And it's from Egypt and it's Jewish. Then we have, from the first century CE, slightly later, a number of ostraca in Aramaic from Judea where uh, the days of the week are used. So this is some sort of account. You know, I gave, I gave them on such and such a day, I gave them a, a fig cake and another fig cake, yet another fig cake, and uh, the dates of these gifts or sales or whatever uh, are given uh, a day, the, the name of the month, and also uh, what day of the week it was. It was a Sabbath day or it was on Sunday. <coughs> and so on and so forth. This is the first document I know from Judea in Hebrew. First document, earliest document in Hebrew that I'm aware of where an event is dated by a day of the week. It's quite late, quite late. And then towards the end of the first century we find the days of the week incorporated into religious legal texts. Again, I think for the first time. This is a an early Christian work, the Didache, in which he says, let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, hypocrites is probably the Pharisees, 
for they fast on the second of the Sabbath, Monday, and on the fifth, Thursday, a practice which is also known later on from the Mishnah, but you fast on the fourth and on preparation. So Friday here is not called the day before Sabbath, it's called preparation, paraskue in Greek, because Friday is when one prepares for the Sabbath. You see that this, um, this week, this seven-day week, is basically constructed with the Sabbath as its focal point to the extent that um, uh, the Friday is given the special name because it's looking towards the Sabbath, and all the other days are numbered with the numbering uh, uh, ending in, in the day of the Sabbath. Good, and then from this point onwards, uh, this uh, biblical week becomes well attested in dated documents and in calendrical documents too. Let's now move to the planetary week, which, as I say, I would argue is of Italian origin. The earliest evidence we have of the planetary week is from the first century BCE, so very close in time, in fact, if not even contemporary with the first manifestations of the biblical week in the East, in Greek and in Hebrew. Uh, here we have, uh, in the same period in Latin, the first manifestations of the planetary week. Um, I have to come clean and tell you that we don't have straightforward evidence of the planetary week uh, in this period, but what we do have are three pieces of evidence, which, if you join them together, you get the planetary week. The first of these is a line in Tobalus, in which he talks about Saturn's holy day, or it could be translated a cursed day. So there is a day associated with the planet of Saturn, perhaps it's the god Saturn, these things are not necessarily very clearly distinguished, but this is my first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence are the Fasti Sabini, which probably were produced at the end of the first century BCE. So um, each block of text represents <coughs> a month. And um, I can't remember actually which months these are, but never mind. And in the first column, you will see that there is a sequence of letters from A to G, which is seven letters. Well, this is evidence that whoever has constructed this calendar reckons the days in cycles of seven. So this is the evidence of a seven-day cycle. Of course, it doesn't mean yet that it's a planetary week, but my third piece of evidence will close the circle. This is a parapegma also from the late 1st century BCE. A parapegma is a type of calendar which is made of um, usually stone, sometimes wood, sometimes clay, with holes, which are peg holes. And you move the peg along every day, and that helps you to keep count of the days. And uh, these days on this parapegma are named after the planets or the heavenly bodies. So you've got Saturn, Sun, Moon, yes, which is Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc. 
Uh, unfortunately, this is all that has survived of the parapegma, so we don't have the full week. But if you put all three pieces together, you will see that days are associated with planets. There is a cycle of seven days, and it is uh, a calendar. Well, it, it, it is made part, it is part of calendars. It is part of the reckoning of days. So it looks like the planetary week is becoming established as um, a way of reckoning days uh, at some point in the latter part of the first century BCE. Then in the first century CE, we have much more explicit expressions of this planetary week. This is a graffito from Pompeii, where we have different lists of different ways of counting days. So. Um, Right at the end is a group of lunar days from 1 to 30, and over here is a group of days in the Roman calendar. But over here, this is what we're interested in, is the seven-day week. Dies means days in Latin, and you've got the day of Saturn, Sun, Moon, Mars, Mercury, Jupiter, and finally Venus. Can I just note in passing that the first day of the week in this scheme is Saturn? And that was also the case uh, in the Parapegma. Yes, it's an important point to note. Uh, here we have another graffito from Pompeii. It's in Greek. Again, the days, of the, the days of the gods and then a sequence of the Greek equivalents of the gods or names of planets that we saw earlier. They're not identified here as planets, they are identified here as gods, it is true. Uh, Kronos is equivalent to Saturn, Helios is the Sun, Selena is the, the Moon, and so on. Yes, it is Greek, but it is Pompeii, so um, I position in my argument that this is an Italian tradition. And then another very nice example from the first century is the so-called Latium Parapegma. This is another Parapegma. The original stone is over here, um, fragmentary. You can see the holes where the pegs are inserted and holes along the top. This drawing here is a reconstruction of what it looked like originally. And on the top line, you've got, again, Saturn at the beginning, beginning of the week, a little hole for Saturn. Sun, little hole, moon, etc. Good. Okay. Well, these two traditions then are very distinct. But then at the end of the first century CE, we begin to see the merger of these two traditions. The first evidence of such a mer merger is in a line of Frontinus, a historian writing in Rome in the late first century, where he talks about the assault of the Roman troops on the Jews during the course of the Great Revolt against Rome and the destruction of the temple, which occurred in, culminated in 70 CE. And he says that the deified, the, yes, the Emperor Vespasian Augustus, attacked the Jews on the day of Saturn, on which it is unlawful for them to do anything important, and therefore, of course, defeated them. Yes. Uh, it's a trick which they always do. Um, yes, so uh, you see how this Roman author assumes that the Jewish day of Sabbath 
is equivalent to the day of Saturn. This is the earliest evidence I know of such uh, an assimilation. And then we have another example further on uh, in the middle of the 2nd century CE, where Justin Martyr writes that the day of the sun, which in English we call Sunday, is the first day on which God made the world, so equivalent to the first day of the biblical week, and Jesus Christ, our Saviour, on the same day rose from the dead. You see how um, the biblical week is now Christianized, and besides the Sabbath, we also have now a day that is going to be associated with the resurrection. But in any event, what's important to me now is the assimilation of the planetary week with the biblical week. And I have to emphasize that the significance, the historical significance of what we see here, because it's not at all self-evident that the planetary week should be identified or merged with the biblical week. And in fact, in some ways, it's counterintuitive, because if you remember, in the planetary week, the first day was Saturn, whereas in the biblical week, the Sabbath is the last day. Yes. So for some reason, which um, I have some ideas about this, but it's not, it's not at all straightforward, for some reason, the last day of the Jewish week is identified with the first day of the planetary one. But in any event, this is what we have here. And the other important thing to note or to emphasize is that the, the reference that we have here in Frontinus does not mean that by the end of the first century, the two weeks have been merged. Not at all. All it means is that one historian, one author, Frontinus, decides to merge the two things, or in his head makes a confusion between the day of Saturn and the day of Sabbath. How long it took for uh, this uh, merger to become established, widely established and widely shared, I actually have no idea, but it could have been considerably later. In any event, by later antiquity, there is no question about the merger of the two weeks. This is a law which was issued in 386, um, establishing the obligation of resting and the prohibition of working on Sunday. Uh, yet this is a Christian Roman Empire, already, yes? and the Roman Emperor here talks about the Day of the Sun, which our ancestors rightly called the Lord's Day. Um, so by then this is taken for granted. And just um, another interesting observation is that in Hebrew also, at this point, there seems to be a similar assimilation of the Sabbath with Saturn, because uh, Saturn is given the name of Shabtai, which is very clearly related to the word Shabbat, the Sabbath. The earliest evidence I have found of this is in the Sefer Yetzirah, which is impossible to date, but uh, if you ask a scholar, he'll tell you between the 3rd and 7th centuries. So that dating should be good enough for us. Good. Okay. So, um, oh, one more. One more example, one final example. Here you have two tombstones, Christian tombstones, from the same location in Palestine, Saar, which is south of the... Dead Sea, tombstones which were produced closely together in time, one in 412, the other in 427, and the date of death is given in one as the day of Mars, and in the other one, the date of death, yes, both in Greek, 
is given as the third day of the Sabbath. Two different ways of expressing the same thing, which is Tuesday. You see how the two weeks, the planetary week and the biblical week, have become more or less interchangeable by late antiquity. And this interchangeability has survived in modern European languages, where in some languages the days of the week are named after the planets or names of gods, whereas in other languages, um, in uh, Greek, I believe in Portuguese also, uh, the days of the week are numbered. Fine. I'd like to go back now a little bit and consider another aspect of which relates to the standardization of the week. And this is that if you go back to the earlier period, this is an inscription from the first century CE, you find that there is no standard count for the seven-day week. So this is a graffito from Pompeii, which has a very precise date, the eighth day before the Ides of February, Sunday, Dies Solis, the day of the sun. Now, this date corresponds to the 6th of February, 60 CE. According to our calendar, this day should have been a Wednesday. And yet the inscription gives it as Sunday. So what they call Sunday is what we would have called Wednesday, which is, um, how shall I say, not consistent with later practice. This is uh, an Italian inscription, most likely, I mean, I, I say non-Jewish, I see no reason why it should be Jewish. It's a, a Latin, normal Roman inscription. But um, in Ptolemaic Egypt, where we look at Jewish papyri, we also find there that there is no standard count. So the papyrus that we were looking at earlier, BGU 20, that incident with the police and so on, yes, which was dated Friday, 27th of July, 49 BCE. So there, the Friday does correspond. So in our calculation, the 27th of July, 49 BCE would indeed have been a Friday. But if you look at another papyrus, uh, also Jewish, from, uh, also from Egypt, just a little bit earlier, this one. So in this papyrus, we have, uh, again, some sort of account um, there seems to be reference to the delivery of beer or the sale of beer, um, some other consignments that arrived from Alexandra, and somebody who's keeping an account and giving dates, uh, keeping dates and saying what happened every day or what he did or what transaction he carried out every day. Um, and uh, the interesting thing for us is that on the first day of Hathu, which is a, a month in the Egyptian calendar, there was no business. He just puts down Sabbath, yes? He didn't carry out any purchase or sale or receive any delivery because that day was a Sabbath. Well, we can calculate what this date was because we know that uh, this papyrus was written in a year three. And as we look down the different options for year three, it could be the reign of Ptolemy the ninth. It could be the reign of Ptolemy the twelfth, less likely uh, uh, Berenice the fourth or Cleopatra the seventh, but whichever option you choose, this date would not have been a Saturday. It would have been a Wednesday, a Thursday, or Friday. So um, what I'm trying to show then is that within the Jewish communities of Egypt in the first century BCE, there is actually no standard way of counting the week. 
And what might be a Sabbath for one person could be, I don't know, a Tuesday for another Jew in some other community. There is no standard way of counting it. The standardization of the count of the week is something which I can only document from much later. And the earliest evidence I can actually begin to produce is associated with the development of Easter tables from the early 3rd century onwards. The earliest Easter table we know was created by someone called Hippolytus in Rome in 222. Here is Hippolytus. Actually, it isn't Hippolytus, but never mind, it's a nice picture. And, um, the point is that the, the text that you have in front of you is inscribed on the chair where this gentleman is sitting, whoever the gentleman is. Um, now, um, without going into details, this is a table for calculating the date of Easter 112 years in advance. And you have a number of columns, um, seven columns here. In each column, he gives you the day of the week corresponding to a particular date in the Roman calendar. So here are the Ides of April. And uh, in the first year of the cycle, the Ides of April will fall on Zeta, which in the Greek alphabet is the seventh, number seven, the seventh day. Um, now, if we check out all these days, we will find that the way he counts a week is exactly the same way as we would count it today. And further evidence of this continues in subsequent um, literature on the calculation of the date of Easter, particularly the pseudo-Cyprian book De Passa Computus, where again he presents a cycle, and the days of the week he gives for the dates correspond to what we would assume. Then we have, uh, in the 4th century, the festal letters of Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, where he writes in his letters when the dates of Easter, the forthcoming dates of Easter will be, and again the days of the week correspond exactly to what we would assume. And there is a calendar codex which was composed in Rome in 354 CE, where uh, in one of the sections you have days of the week and again they correspond exactly. So basically what I'm trying to say then is that from the 3rd century onwards, the literature that we see assumes a standard way of counting the week. So what we're witnessing then is a certain standardization this week. Interestingly, all the evidence I'm presenting to you, which is the only evidence I could find, is related to the date of Easter and is Christian. And this is going to lead me then to a few concluding hypotheses about the seven-day week. The first is, as we have seen, that in the late first century CE, we witness a merger, or the beginning of a merger, of two very different traditions, the biblical Sabbath week and the planetary week. But at this point in history, the count of the week is not yet standard. So people will start and finish the week at different times. And it's only from the 3rd century onwards that we have the emergence of Christian Easter tables, assuming a standard count of the week. Then in 325, the Council of Nicaea, where it is decreed that all Christians must observe Easter on the same date. And Easter is always on a Sunday. So if all Christians have to observe Easter on the same date, they have to jolly well make sure that they count the week in the same way. So this is also conducive, in other words, towards the reckoning of a 
standards weak. In the 4th and 5th centuries, the Easter cycle itself becomes increasingly standardized. The Roman Empire becomes Christianized. So um, basically, in conceptual terms, we have um, two processes. One, which is hybridization, um, by which I mean that you have two separate cultural traditions, an Italian one, a biblical one, which then sort of merge and become one. And this is part of the culture of the Roman Empire, where, um, where culture is sort of fused in common. And I suppose one could use a modern term, globalization, although it's a bit risky to use this in the context of the relatively very small Roman Empire. But um, the, the way in which culture becomes merged and assimilated and syncretized in a certain way, this is one process which we witness in this context. And the other one is the diffusion of Easter tables, the impact of Christianizations over the establishment of a standard seven-day week. Good. This is enough about the seven-day week. I'm now going to move on to two other cases, which will be much shorter than this one. And with that, I shall conclude my talk. So the next one, then, is the Jewish calendar controversy of 921 to 922, another research project that was part of our broader uh, project that we are um, marking in this conference. Uh, this is a, a relatively important historical event where um, the communities of the rabbinic, the Jewish rabbinic communities of Palestine and Babylonia disagreed with the dates of the festivals. The event is recorded for us by a Christian chronographer, Elias of Nisibis, writing about 100 years after the event in Syriac. Uh, but what he says is the following. In this year, the year 309 of the Hydra, which was 1232 of the Greeks, there befell a division or disagreement between the Jews of the West. This is a, a normal way of referring to the Jews of Palestine, also attested in Jewish rabbinic literature, and the Jews of the East, concerning, that's Babylonia, Iraq, concerning the calculation of their festivals. The Jews who are in the West made the beginning of their year, Rosh Hashanah, on Tuesday, whereas those of the East made it on Thursday. So the festivals were celebrated two days apart. Quite a considerable difference, which um, <coughs> the fact that a Christian a uh, chronographer, a hundred years later, bothers to record it in his chronography, gives us an impression of the importance that the event might have had at the time. And it was generally a very important event. We have a lot of literature from the Cairo Gniza, um, records of letters which were exchanged at the time, um, literary compositions which were composed at the time. It was a very major controversy between the Jews of Palestine and Babylonia which um, initially was about the dates of festivals, but then gradually escalated into a general debate about the calendar. And I'm introducing you now to a uh, Cairo Geniza fragment, which is part of a work which I call the Book of the Calendar Controversy. This is one of the most important works which have survived regarding this controversy. It was written by Babylonians, so it's from a Babylonian perspective, though it's very anti-Palestinian, the leader on the Palestinian side was called Ben Meir, Meir in 
Hebrew means the lightener, the one who makes light. So our polemicist here with Babylonian calls him the maker of darkness. Um, and um, what he accuses him of doing, which is, and which is probably historically true, is that uh, he went one step further and composed four gates, etc., uh, etc. Et I'm not going to go into the details, but basically the four gates is a complete system for calculating the calendar. So what happens then in the course of this controversy is that moving on from a debate about when the festivals should occur this year, the Palestinians brought the discussion one level up, if you want, and framed it as uh, a fundamental disagreement about how the entire calendar should be reckoned. And so effectively, he came up with an alternative calendar. And it seemed to me that um, this controversy was actually very interesting because um, eventually a standard to Jewish calendar was going to emerge. And it seems that this controversy had a very important part to play in this. So this historical event might shed quite some important light for us on how calendars become actually standardized and fixed. The traditional narrative which has dominated scholarship for the last hundred years is that the Babylonians won the argument and therefore their calendar emerged triumphant and that is a calendar which has survived, the Jewish calendar, which has survived ever since, unchanged, until this very date. This proposition I am challenging uh, in my own research and analysis of this controversy. It seems to me that far from a triumph of the Babylonian side, it was much more like a sort of stalemate where neither side was able to impose their views. This comes out very clearly in this passage of the book of the calendar controversy, where the narrator tells us that there was a meeting of the Babylonian leaders, and they observed in consternation that actually there wasn't much they could do to stop the Palestinians using a different calendar. And they said, we will not be able to destroy all the texts which Ben Meir, the Palestinian leader, wrote on this, and which he sent to all the places. He's already written a calendar. He has disseminated in his own community, wherever else. There's no way of calling back uh, these books. And furthermore, it may even be that his letters have been copied among the people. So even if we had some sort of register of how many texts were distributed by the Palestinian leader himself, and we could somehow try and trace them and recall them back, we don't know how many copies were made of those books and if copies were made of the books, it's a lost battle. There is absolutely no way of remedying the situation. The best we can do, they said, is to write this book, which is a book of the calendar controversy, for it to be a memorandum among all Israel to inform them of this deed of Ben Meir from beginning to end, to move them away, to warn them, to commandment that any document, writing or text that are found among the people and in which you find written a certain value instead of the correct one, uh, this book is a falsehood, it's the Palestinian one, you should tear it up, you should not look at it. So all they could do then is to produce a rival book which would somehow counter the Palestinian one. And so they did, and they were well advised. 
On the 20th of Elul of the year 922, his readings were read. This was the second day of the week, uh, etc. So there was some sort of public reading, which of course didn't help anything, because as we know from Elias of Nisibis, uh, in the 922, on the following, in the following months, the new year was celebrated on different dates. But nevertheless, you can see here an attempt to, to do something about it, and the way you do it is by writing a book and then making public readings of it. And further on, uh, the text goes on to tell us uh, that um, this book should, in fact, be read every year. Uh, it's not completely explicit, but that seems to be the meaning of the passage, that every year in the month of Elul, which is before the New Year, before the High Holidays, before the coming of the festivals, this text should be read in all your gates, and all the fools will be corrected and will no longer transgress, as all that he did. Right. Translation a bit. Not very... Uh, a bit literal, I apologise for that, but one gets the general idea. Okay, so this then is another example of a process of standardization of how an attempt can be made towards the standardization, fixation of the calendar. The end of the story, uh, in my analysis, is that in the course of the centuries, the Palestinian calendar declined, together with the general decline of Palestinian communities and of the Palestinian uh, traditions, Palestinian rights, and, uh, and it's simply through a sort of natural process that the Babylonian calendar eventually prevailed. Finally, case number three, the dateline in medieval sources. Right, what is a dateline? Nothing scary, I promise you. People get very puzzled by the dateline, but... Um, so there is a dateline which runs here in the middle of the Pacific. So just like you have time zones, which means that if I travel from here to France, I've got to adjust my watch by one hour, and if I come back again, I've got to bring it back again by one hour. So there is also a dateline in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. If I cross the dateline, I've got to change my calendar by one day, and then if I cross over again, change it back again, yes? The dateline. So why is there a dateline? Well, very simple, because if um, we are here in England and it's about sort of four in the morning, yes? And it's a Tuesday, yes? So it's Tuesday, four in the morning. Well, that means that whilst it's four in the morning here in England, it's midnight in uh, the west coast of Canada. And uh, it's therefore, uh, what day did I say, Tuesday? Yeah, Tuesday, okay. So, uh, so it's, um, well, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> if, it's, if it's four in the morning, if it's four in the morning in England, yes, well, it's midnight here, West Coast. It's 9pm, it's Monday still, yes, isn't it? In, in America, it's still Monday. So it's Monday here. So it's 6pm over here. So uh, by the time you get to China, it's Monday noon. And then Russia, it's 9am uh, Monday, 6am Monday here. And in England, according to that, it's Monday uh, Monday at 4 a.m. and yet before we just said it was Tuesday. So there's a problem here. So the only way of, of resolving this problem is by agreeing that we're going to change the date when we cross this line. 
that's the date line. So um, the important thing to understand, I'll just explain to you the essential thing. Day and night is an objective reality. When you look at the globe as it is here, there is no running away from the fact that it's night here and it's day here. Okay, and therefore it's noon over here and it's midnight there. This is a physical fact. You can't run away from it. It's an objective reality. But the date, what we call a date, which is a number or a name that we give to days, could be the day of the week, could be the day of the month, are not objective realities. They are conventional and they are cultural dependent. And therefore, the problem of the dateline is artificial. It only arises when one tries to count or name days in the same way around the whole world. If I'm applying the same seven-day week or the same Gregorian calendar around the world, that's when I run into difficulties. That's where I'm forced to... Uh, if, I, if we only counted the week over here, well, then nobody would be bothered with anything. It wouldn't matter, really. Yes? The problem we had was that I wanted to know the day of the week all the way around the globe, and then I ran into difficulties. That's why you need a dateline. So the dateline is an anomaly which results from the standardization and globalization of the seven-day week and of calendars. And with this introduction, then, I would like to have a look at medieval sources. Because what I'd like to argue is that the discussion of the dateline in medieval sources is very much to do with an attempt to globalize and standardize time, the reckoning of time, and therefore calendars. Right, the international dateline in medieval sources. The earliest known theory of the dateline in Western civilization, I think in the whole of civilization, I think the earliest person ever to have written about a dateline is a Jew, a philosopher writing in Spain, Judah Halevi, in the book of the Kuzari, in the early 12th century. And the location he gives to the dateline is 90 degrees east of Palestine. It's a very interesting thing, this. Why is it that a Jew was the first one to think of it? And he's not even an astronomer. Yes, he's a poet and a philosopher. We'll leave that question out of the way for the moment. The second to talk about the dateline is again a Jew. Uh, this is Isaac Israeli, part of our research project. He criticizes um, Judah Levi's concept of a dateline. According to Isaac Israeli, there is no dateline. And for him, it's very simple. The day begins in the Far East, which is something like China, and ends in the Far, rest, far West, which is... Uh, for him, basically, Spain. And that's the end of the story for him. This is upset uh, by the 17th century with the discovery of America. Um, so here we have David Gantz writing in Prague in, at the, right at the beginning of the 17th century. He criticizes Israeli's concept of Far East and Far West. There's no such thing as Far East and Far West. Now that America, he calls it Peru, yeah, this name that was used in this period, now that Peru has been discovered, and more recently, New Guinea, very interested, David Guns is very interested in the discovery of New Guinea, well, uh, the whole world has been collapsed, really. There's no, more, there's no more far west, because, you know, from Spain you move on to America. There's no more far east, because from far east you move into New Guinea, and basically it's a continuum. 
So uh, there is no natural beginning and natural end, and he leaves the problem of the date line completely unresolved. He just has no solution uh, for how we should deal with this, where we should locate it, and so on. On the Christian side, the first person to wake up to the problem of the date line was a French astronomer called, uh, in Latin, Nicolus Oresmus. In French, it's pronounced Nicolas Orem. In English, I don't know how you pronounce this. Um, and um, he's, he's relatively late, actually, compared to the first Jewish mention of a dateline, the mid-14th mid century. He has a couple of references to the dateline, but they're very brief, and he's clearly not um, keen to talk very much about it. He certainly doesn't venture to give a location to the dateline, so uh, he just sort of expresses awareness of this, but doesn't go beyond that, in contrast to the Jewish authors who write at great length about the subject. Uh, he also seems to be totally unaware of what the Jews have written, which is hardly surprising, because they were writing in Judeo-Arabic and in Hebrew, that he um, only knows Latin. And then complete silence, uh, nothing after that uh, among Christian writers, not until uh, 1617, where Nicolas Berger, another Frenchman, uh, does provide uh, a more extensive exposition, discussion of the dateline, and he even suggests a location for it, 180 degrees from Mercator's prime meridian, which is actually not so far from the dateline that we have today. Now, of course, Nicolas Berger is writing in the context of a very different world where circumnavigation of the world is becoming increasingly common, so uh, the dateline becomes much more of a practical issue, and this is exacerbated with the gradual European colonization of the Pacific Ocean in this period. So it's really a practical need at this point, whereas uh, in earlier centuries, the concept of the dateline had been completely theoretical. Now, um, I'm not going to go into detail with this, but I just want to draw a contrast between Nicole Orem on the one side and Judah Alevi on the other, and try and figure out very briefly why it is that Judah Alevi is so interested in the dateline, whereas Nicole Orem is hardly interested at all. So this is one of two very brief, brief passages uh, of Nicole Orem where the dateline is mentioned. As you can see, he hardly says anything at all. But this is what he writes. When such a distinction, he's referring presumably to the dateline, although it's not as explicit as it should be, such a distinction would necessarily be made if everywhere around the earth people were living and the whole world were governed by the same laws. So um, what he is saying is that the dateline would only be necessary if the world were inhabited everywhere and governed by the same laws. What I was saying earlier, not, but that the same calendar is applied everywhere. That is the only situation where you would need to have a dateline. But this is only an if. Yes, I've highlight, highlighted the if. C, yes, in Latin. It's only an if, because Orem is very well aware that it's not true that uh, the Julian calendar, for example, is used in China or in other parts 
of the world. So basically, as far as he's concerned, there is no global calendar. There is no standard time. And therefore, there is no need for a dateline. And that is why he is not really interested in pursuing the question any further. In contrast, Judah Levi has a very different approach. In his view, a dateline is a necessity. And the reason why it's a necessity is because in his understanding, the seven-day week is reckoned the same around the world. And I quote, there is no difference, he says in that passage of the Kuzari, there is no difference among mankind about the seven days of the week. This is a very bold statement for him to make. It might have been true in his day of Christendom and of Islam also, which um, extended, I suppose, quite far to the east already then, but to claim that around the whole world there is no difference, everyone agrees on the seven-day week, is of course false. But this is a belief which he strongly holds to, and he explains it in this way. Adam began to name the days, as he did with all that dwelt on earth, and the following generations continues counting in the same way. So in his conception, just as Adam in the narrative of Genesis gives names to all the animals, all the creatures that were created, he also gave names to the days of the week. So in other words, the seven-day week is an Adamite institution in a certain way, which was built into the creation and became an inherent part of it. Through the naming power of Adam, the week and the Sabbath became a cosmic, universal, and objective reality. This is, these are my words, not, not his, yes, but it's my interpretation of, of Judah Halevi. And for this reason, for him, a dateline has to be an inherent part of the structure of the, of the globe, of the world, because if the Sabbath is sort of built in, and the seven-day week is built into the world, there has to be a dateline as part of this. So, in other words, his globalizing view of the week uh, as a universal standard, uh, and hence the necessity of a dateline, for him, it actually proceeds from a, an ideological, a religious conception of the world and the creation. So I'd like to suggest, in other words, that what is driving here the move towards standardizing time is um, a certain ideological standpoint. And with this, we shall come to my final slide. We've seen in this lecture many different ways in which calendars, through which calendars have become standardized and fixed. This project does not conclude with a single theory, but with lots of different ideas, which I suppose all come together, point in a similar direction. We saw how in the ancient world, political processes, in particular the rise of great empires, were most conducive towards the development of standard imperial, standard calendars, which were increasingly fixed. In the context of the seven-day week, we spoke about hybridization, the merger of the planetary week with the biblical week, the impacts of Christianization over the establishment of a single way of counting the week. In the context of the calendar controversy of 921, so uh, yes, there was 
the rivalry was about rabbinic authority, about different communities, but we saw how the writing of books um, played a certain role here. And I'm thinking a little bit of an aspect of our project which I haven't spoken much, and these are the, the monographs, the chronology of Al-Biruni, the Sodolamov. But the, the writing of books uh, perhaps has a certain part to play in um, establishing standard uh, calendar practices. And finally, the dateline, uh, our comparison of Nicola Hem and Judah Levy, where I suggested that religious ideology played an important part there in the general processes leading to standardization and fixation of calendars. And that's it. <laughs> Thank you, Sasha, for a very wide-ranging uh, presentation, touching on many aspects of our project. I'm sure there's some questions or comments. Um, I'm looking at your um, presentation on the international date line. I would have thought that perhaps the first person to really notice that you know it, 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 it existed within the framework of the universal calendar would have been Francis Drake, who would have returned either a day earlier or a day later yeah. from Southampton or wherever. I think, the, I think the first people to actually experience the, the date line in practice were Portuguese circumnavigators of the world. And there are accounts from the early 16th century where... The first circumnavigator, sorry, was... Yeah. Who, who, who lived to tell the tale was actually Francis Drake. No, 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 no. died on the yes. That could be, that could be, but that didn't prevent them from realizing when they reached a certain point in their voyage that something had gone very awry with the with their count of days. And there are there are several records of this. Very amusing, I suppose, from our perspective. Um, I was fascinated by the open part store. Um, with that kind of display of different, of, of pink exploding over the map. Um, and I was wondering if we could supplement that kind of story um, of the solar calendar rising and becoming standardized with how the lunar calendar, the kind of corresponding tale of how the lunar calendar um, becomes unfixed and oscillates, um, particularly with relation to the fasting in the Roman Empire, I was wondering about how far the rise of the seven-day week corresponds to the decline of uh, the fasting, this kind of, this great masterpiece of, of the Roman imperial um, bureaucracy. Um, because you have the rise of the seven-day week and then in 386 uh, in the Codex Theodosianus, um, that's kind of enshrined in law that the seven-day week of the Sabbath, um, well, not the Sabbath, but Sunday at its um, end point as the, as the prohibition of work. Uh, but at the same time, in the fifth century, you've got evidence of the major holidays that were the keynotes of the fasting being celebrated, the Parentalia, the Lupercalia. Um, so how, so can we, can we kind of see how the fasty format fashion as Christianity makes the Sunday week canonical. Yes, uh, this is a very important um, point. 
Um, in, in my research and in the context of this project, there has been a, a certain focus on the structure of calendars rather than on their contents. But you're quite right that um, the, the order of special days or festivals that one could find in the Fasti, for example, um, uh, have also a lot to do with the processes which we're talking about here. And that um, just as one has a standardization of the way the calendar is structured, one also could talk about the standardization of the, the, the religious festivals which occur within a calendar. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't really give an answer to your question. It's, it's a, it's, your question is good and it needs further pursuing, really. I, I, I wrote a book on calendars in antiquity, and the last line of the book was that I'd only, I'd only covered a very small aspect of calendars, really, and the field was still wide open, and I really did actually mean it. So uh, it's a story which needs to be followed on. Just a very pointed question um, that's part of a larger question that I won't ask now. Um, in the images you showed from the gravestones at Soar, what was the chronology? To what years were they counted? The, the chronology that they use is an era of the province of Arabia, which starts in the year 106, when Arabia became a Roman province. Uh, and what we mean by Arabia is what would be called nowadays more like southern Jordan. And uh, it's a very reliable way of identifying. It's a very sort of stable, shall I put it, uh, uh, way of identifying years. Other questions? Yes, um, just an observation. We were talking about Frontinus and uh, Vespasian attacked Jews on the Sabbath. But if you look at uh, Josephus, uh, there's no mention of that at all. So he's, I don't know where he got that idea from, because Frontinus and Vespasian would be contemporaries. In fact, because he was doing the aqueducts of Rome, he would have known Vespasian and his circle quite intimately. Um, right, well, we need to check this out, because this is not my memory of things. I, uh, I, I think, um, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the concept of attacking the Jews on the Sabbath is already found in the books of Maccabees, when, when the Greeks take advantage of the fact that the Jews are not working or not prepared to fight on that day to attack them. I think it's a, it's a certain tradition which uh, runs through the history of Jewish wars in the Hellenistic and Roman period. But what's significant about Frontinus is that he, uh, the way he, he names or identifies the Sabbath as the day of Saturn, that, that was... Uh, that was what I, what I found important about that passage. But in other respects, I don't actually think it's, it's that unique. But we can check that out. Any other questions? Yes, yes. Well, first of all, let me make a comment. I, I think the uh, Islamic calendar is far from being standard. I mean, the people, the idea is simple. But uh, uh, the people disagree about how much calculation should be put into it. And, Quite shamefully, let me add, uh, in uh, Iraq a few years ago, the Shia and the uh, uh, Sunnis uh, have, have, have celebrate the end of Ramadan differently. <coughs> That's a small comment. The other is, I find it quite remarkable that uh, 
uh, the uh, Israelites and uh, uh, the Romans should come uh, up with uh, uh, something similar, so similar, that is not directly uh, related to uh, astronomic observation. And so we... Yeah, that's a big mystery, isn't it? Uh, uh, and also, I, I'm, not, I'm not a specialist on this issue, but uh, I, I, mean, I remember reading that the Babylonians had some division of the month, some, uh, something similar to over do you have any comments on that? Right. So, um, yeah, thank you. first of all, thank you for your comments on the Islamic calendar. Of course, it is more complicated than I presented it, and uh, even the beginning of the month can be subject of debate because some people might have seen the moon and others might not have seen it. So uh, there is some flexibility in the Islamic calendar, uh, which has to be acknowledged. Um, on on the, the week, yes, um, I, I share with you the astonishment. I, I also find it quite remarkable, this sort of coincidence that uh, there is a tradition on either side but then, then of seven days. But then I reflect to myself that had the week in the Bible been an eight-day week, yes, let's say that the Bible had a creation of the world in eight days, yes, then there would have been equally a, a potential merger of the eight-day week with the eight non-dinal cycle on the Roman side. So, uh, given that the Romans had several ways of counting days, several cycles, well, one of them has to be the same as the biblical one. It's perhaps not such a coincidence as it appears to be. <laughs> as uh, concerning the Babylonian thing, if you look at the um, on our website, uh, the uh, conference, the workshop that we had on the um, origin of the seven-day week, I wrote quite a long thing about the. Um, the Babylonians and the etymology of the Sabbath. Yes, but, but I think the conclusion we, we all reached is that, and we're not the first we've reached, is that there is actually no evidence at all of, this, of a seven-day week yeah. in Babylonian sources. So right, John? There is evidence for yeah. dividing the month into four parts, right. but that is different. It's not really quite the same as having exactly seven days repeating themselves as yeah. an immutable cycle. Um, Sasha, you mentioned the rather subdued influence of Mesopotamian and Hellenistic mathematical astronomy on ancient calendars. And some of the exceptions you mentioned, of course, the Jewish calendar, the case is obvious, the Jewish calendar uses the linear B value, so it means not a month. And then we have, you mentioned the Christian Easter cycle, and I just wanted to ask you to expand on that, and how far, you know, is it necessary to assume this sort of, sort of influence from, from the astronomical side of things, is it just a 19-year cycle you have in mind here, or is there something more substantial going on? I think it's just a 19-year cycle, actually. But, but still, um, it's still something which would have been received from, from um, Hellenistic astronomy, I, I think. Um, I, I don't think it's something which comes from anywhere else, put it like that. But it is a very, it is a very narrow point. Yeah, especially since the... the Duration of the month given is exactly the same as one Ptolemy. No, uh, no, but uh, Philip means in the, the Christian Easter cycles. I see. Yeah. Uh, what, what you're saying is correct Fair. about the, the Jewish calendar, but uh, but I'm I'm now referring to the. No, you're asking about the Easter cycles, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
Then more I'm being blinded by this. I can't see it as any. In that case, thank you again, Sasha, for speaking with me.